All right, biohackers, who doesn't love a yummy, creamy whey protein shake? Oh, it is such a treat. And I really love it as a meal replacement, post-workout recovery, maybe even a midday snack. So this is why I have to tell you about Puri Protein Powder. I absolutely love the bourbon vanilla flavor and the chocolate, but I think I got to go with the, the vanilla as my favorite. So it's smooth, it's delicious. And you know what else? It's pretty awesome that the flavors come from real natural ingredients like the bourbon vanilla seeds from Madagascar. And let's talk about quality because there's a lot of junk whey protein on the market that I would not recommend. So the Puree whey protein, it comes from pasture-raised cow's milk with no hormones, no GMOs, and no pesticides. This is because Puree's mission has always been to be the best at offering pure, clean, and superior products that, that support health and well-being. And what I think truly sets them apart is that they are fully transparent with their product testing. Every batch is third-party tested against more than 200 contaminants and certified clean by the Clean Label Projects. Not all brands can say this. Plus, each product contains a QR code so you can personally scan it and review the test results at home. I know you're excited to try it out. So what you're going to do is head on over to puri.com slash biohackerbabes. That's P-U-O-R-I.com slash biohackerbabes. And then make sure you use promo code biohackerbabes at checkout to save 20%. All right, let's get back to the show. That tells you how important it is to have regular screenings. Yeah. That's why we believe like an annual precision screening across all disease categories is the future of medicine. That would drive down mortality rates like nothing else. Hey there, welcome to the Biohacker Babes podcast. We are your hosts. I'm Renee, a certified nutritional consultant with a master's degree in nutrition. What's up? And I'm Lauren, functional diagnostic nutrition practitioner and Czech movement specialist. We're sisters and we're joining forces to empower you to become your own biohacker and upgrade your life. Our mission is to provide actionable steps so you can optimize your health, strengthen your intuition, and support your body's natural healing abilities. Because life is too short to not feel your best every single day. Thank you for joining us and welcome to the show. Hello and welcome to episode 211 of the Biohacker Babes. My name is Renee and I'm tuning in with my sister, co-host Lauren, across the country today. Hey, Laura. Hello. Hello and welcome. Hi, everyone. Tuning in from New York City today. Happy to be here. Let's do it. Hey. All right. We have a guest coming on today. We have Joe Bakhti coming on the show. And I actually first met Joe back in January. We went to a mastermind together and I was just blown away by everything he shared with the group. You know, we were really discussing some difficult topics, I would say. I mean, like, you know, what can be the big solution to the problems in healthcare? You know, how do we really help patients today? And he just had so many amazing solutions and is such a hard worker in the space that we've stayed connected since. And I'm really excited to bring you this conversation all about the importance of really like prevention and early screenings, early detection. I think everyone everyone in the country really needs this, but he also explains why maybe initially it's not going to be for everyone, but maybe in five, 10 years down the road, it will be more accessible. And his mission is incredible. So I just, I love what he's doing. And this was a great conversation. I agree. He, he's like such a solution, man. He just jumps right in. He just understands from such a high level perspective, which 
I think is really needed because I think we're just like zooming in too closely and it's really hard to have creative solutions and creative orientation when we're so focused and intent on fixing a singular problem. So I really appreciate his very wide perspective. And yeah, for me, the biggest takeaway is we just have to keep talking about prevention, prevention, prevention. We need to not be afraid of getting information and data that could, you know, you know, if ignored, take us down a really wrong pathway. Like, do not wait until it's too late. Information is power. Information is knowledge. And we have solutions. And I do like that he was very honest that not everything is flushed out at this point, but we're kind of taking a horizontal move and rebuilding a healthcare system that makes more sense and is more integrative and, you know, more successful in that way. So it's not 100%. And as Renee said, it's not super accessible now but it's going in that direction. I think going in that direction quite fast, no matter who you are though, we have to get on board with like, we want to prevent. That's where we really increase our health span is if we can lean into the preventative measures. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. You're right. He does have like a very big picture view of all of this and he's, he's leading the way. I think it's an exciting time. All right. Before we jump in, let me tell you a little bit more about Joe Bakhti. So he is the founder and CEO of QuantGene with the mission to extend the healthy human lifespan by a decade within a decade. Together with QuantGene's team of scientists and engineers, he is dedicated to introducing cloud AI and precision diagnostics into the standard of care to enhance the quality and accessibility of care for everyone and protect human life. Born to scientist parents, Joe grew up with a backdrop of medical research before earning a master's degree in economics at Tübingen University, one of Germany's leading academic institutions. Prior to QuantGene, Joe held executive positions at BDDO and Omnicon with a focus on business model innovation and technology. He then founded I2X, an investment platform that provides quantitative and analytics for biotechnology and technology portfolios. Wowie. Okay. You guys are going to love Joe. Let's drop in biohackers. Welcome Joe to the biohacker babes. Thanks for joining us on this beautiful Monday. Thanks for having me. Yeah. Excited. I We've been actually, I think I first met you back in January. We got to do the mastermind together. Then we also got to hang out at the HealthSpan Summit. And now we are fortunate enough to have you on the podcast. And I'm just really excited because, Joe, you have an amazing mission. Um, I think I read it in your bio, even though you said that you want to extend lifespan by a decade in the next decade. And you are doing amazing work. And I just am so excited to bring this to our audience today. So I think to kick off, I actually want to read something I found on your website. This really stood out to me. It says, cancer, stroke, heart attack, diabetes, the diseases we are most afraid of, have become preventable with advanced treatments, but only if they are detected early. So today I really want to focus a lot on early detection, prevention, a lot of the amazing things we were talking about before we hit record. But I think to kick it off, why do you feel these early screenings are just so essential in preventative healthcare today? Yeah. If you look at the clinical data, it is pretty obvious and pretty proven uh, let's take cancer as an example, that early detection is the biggest lifesaver you can have, you can introduce in these diseases. And we often look at the treatment level, right? Everyone talks about precision treatments and, you know, the future of cancer treatments. But when you look at the data, it's all about prevention and the early detection. So the ability to detect a tumor, for example, early stage in the body is your biggest driver of survival rates uh, that you can ever introduce. 
And you have it in breast cancer, for example, right? So if you have a metastatic breast cancer, survival rate, five-year survival rate is only 9%. If you have a stage one, it's 99%. So that's how dramatically different that is. And the reason is because we can, we can now treat early stage tumors very effectively across most tumor types, right? You resect it surgically, you do a little local radiation, and you're basically done. If it becomes advanced and metastatic, it's a giant problem. But when you think about it, it's the same person and it's the same tumor. It's just later on the timescale. So how do you introduce something in your life that you systematically intercept any kind of cancer, you know, in the right frequency? And often people ask, you know, what is the right frequency for screenings? And, you know, the right answer is, is not just empirically where it's proven to do, you know, to, to change outcomes. I think that's, that data is very hard to actually generate if you haven't done it as a population. Um, but you can just think about it logically, right? You have a tumor and the tumor grows. And at the, at the moment where you, this tumor becomes a stage one tumor, how much time do you have to intercept it before it becomes stage two or three or four? And we know these numbers, right? There are dwell times, it's called dwell times, like around three years from stage one to th- stage four. Of course, it can vary. Um, but that tells you how important it is to have regular screenings, right? Once a year, for example. Mm. And that's yeah. that's why we believe like an annual precision screening across all disease categories is the future of medicine that would drive down mortality rates like nothing else. Yeah. It's what powerful. is the starting point? Like what age per gender? Because I know there are kind of certain goalposts for certain ages per disease or per genetic predisposition. But is this something you want to see start happening earlier and earlier? So the rule here is everything is statistics, right, in medicine. So the question is, there is no absolute answer to that. Everything is on a okay. on a gradient, right? Mm-hmm. And when you look at disease risks, they're just going up very exponentially, starting with 50. But of course, technically, they go up exponentially all the time with 20. But the question is, you know, when does this exponential um, increase become a problem? And from 20 to 40, you still have that exponential raise, but on a such a low basis that when you look at where the cancers actually occur, the vast, vast majority, 90% plus of cancers are 50 plus, right? So that's why often in screening guidelines, 50 is an important age. But when you really think about it, in colorectal cancer, we see more and more people in their 30s also getting colorectal cancer. So the short answer is, my personal take on it, and it's a personal take because it's all about discretion, right? At what point do you have the appetite, your risk appetite for doing something? I think 40 is a great starting age. Then you're 10 years earlier than the standard of care often recommends, even though that standard gets also pushed forward to 45 for colon cancer screening. I think mm-hmm. with 40, you definitely should start being extremely proactive. And okay. I mean, if you can afford it, you can start with 35. But I think around there, if you're very proactive, you should start being very uh, on top of your game. Mm. Yeah, I think accessibility is a big part. And I will talk more about that because I know that's really important to you. Yes. I'm just curious, how many people, I'm sure it's hard to put a number on that, but what percentage of the population do you think is avoiding these screenings because they just are afraid to know? Like waiting (sighs) until the last minute, waiting until that last age that is recommended to do something when maybe they know that they should do it sooner, but we're afraid to get that answer. Like there's a, to me, it sounds like there's a big psychology piece involved here. So how do we get people to really care about the prevention? 
So you have two layers of preventive screenings, I would say. Number one, you have standard of care. So standard of care screenings are the screenings that officially are in the guidelines in the United States. And these guidelines, just to be very clear, they are a Venn diagram of what's medically proven and economically affordable for the government or the insurance companies. So it's not just what keeps you alive. It's what keeps you alive at a reasonable cost to the government. And there are very clear numbers. For example, just to understand what standard of care means. A lot of people think standard of care is just the best practice. That's totally not true. It's the best cheap practice. Mm. So, ah. and there are clear price points on that. For example, any kind of measure that extends your life by one year, where you gain one quality adjusted life year, quality, right? So at a hundred percent quality of life, there's like metrics. So if you have like, if you feel really crappy for two years, it's like one life year extended at full quality, something like that. The number is $50,000. If that costs more than $50,000, they drop you. It's like, okay, that's not paid for. Not because it doesn't extend your life, but because it costs more than $50,000. So that's the famous $50,000 rule that no one knows about other than healthcare specialists. Uh, How government and insurance decides if you live or not. So it's a little macabre, but that's how it works. So we have to be aware standard of care is always intersection of medically sound and economically cheap enough. So Mm. that tells you what we are doing here is basically saying, well, people have different economics. So what if you think gaining one hard year of life, right, is worth more than 50,000? What if it's 60,000, you're willing to pay 60,000 to live one year longer? And we are talking not hypothetical years, we are talking like hard proven years, right? So that can be statistically, if you have a 10% chance of living a year longer, if that costs 6,000 bucks, you don't get it, right? But you could pay for it. So mm. don't want to get too complicated here, but that's standard of care. Um, what the next level of screening is precision screenings that are not standard of care, but medically proven, or at least there's massive evidence that it helps. And that's what you know we are doing. And um, to your question, standard of care everyone should get as kind of an objective of the healthcare system to get you these screenings and that's mammograms for women in certain frequencies there's colorectal cancer screenings uh, melanoma screenings like certain things are kind of approved but even in that standard of care setting 92 percent of americans have gaps so that's crazy so 92 percent of americans do not get the standard of care screenings they have some sort of gap and that's crazy. So because these are not just proven to save your life, they're also proven to save money. So it's like completely crazy Um, or they are proven to be in that range. So if that's the situation center of care, what's the situation in advanced screenings? Of course, basically no one gets advanced screenings to the full extent, like it's some marginal number of people. And I think that is the biggest opportunity in healthcare like to actually protect our lives is to start doing that the right way. Now, what are the reasons that people don't get that? I think there are two reasons, Lauren. Number one, yes, people have like a difficult relationship sometimes with uh, screening. And I think it's two forces pushing there. Number one is the psychological topic. Like, do I even want to know? I mean, the short answer is yes, you want to know because it's not going away by not looking at it. It's going away by looking at it and doing something. Um, And the second is also pure inertia, 
or laziness. He's like, yeah, I know I should, and I have nothing against it, but I don't have time or something. But the second I'll do it next week, I'll do it next week, next, next year week. or something. Yeah. Exactly. But the, the second reason that I think is more important, because what you're saying, Lauren, I totally get it. I think that is a reason everyone should be aware of that and do something. But that's not really how anything else works in life, right? We are we are a free market society. So normally you buy something, right? You're not saying like, you're so lazy, you didn't build your car. It's like, no, yeah. I bought my car because other people can do a better job. So, yeah. so what's yeah. missing, I think, is a service or system that just makes sure you get everything you need. And that system in theory is the healthcare system. But number one, they're only doing standard of care, which is clearly not enough for the reasons I mentioned. And second, they're doing a bad job in even doing standard of care. Like when was your physician? When did your physician call you last time and say, okay, here's a, here's a matrix of all the stuff you should be doing. Here's red, here's green, here's orange. Like I've never seen that. So that would be a very obvious thing to do. And the reason the healthcare system or your physicians are not going to do it is because they don't have the technology and the intent to do that. It's just not a big agenda point. And or the time. Or the time, right. I mean, normally you should invent some systems so you don't need much time, but it's not there. <laughs> so these yeah. medical, I call them medical intelligence systems that just watch over you and know at every point in time, okay, here's Rene, here's age, medical history, everything, risk profile, ideally genetic risk profile. Here are all the trigger points for standard of care and here are the trigger points for advanced precision prevention. Where are you at? What's red, what's green, what's orange? That doesn't really, I mean, it exists here with you know, what certain companies like Resolution do, but not in standard of care. So, you know, I think that's kind of when I, as an economist, by trade, by original trade, I'm an economist. When I look at this whole mess, uh, sometimes things are kind of simple. You have to zero in what is actually life-saving, what is proven to be life-saving, what is the most cost-effective, which is prevention, and then what is the percentage population covered at 100%, and what's the area under the curve? How many people are covered with what percent? And when you do this analysis, it's a total disaster. People mm. are just not covered. And... That is a great opportunity because they should be covered. And if you cover them, you could cut the risk of death roughly in half just with that before 75. Wow. So there that's you have strange. it. That's that's the thing. And people get distracted, you know, in biohacking with all kinds of, you know, allopathic medicine, like here's some pill and here's this and that. But if you run the numbers, that's what kills you. I mean, what actually what actually cuts your life short it's very simple to tell what that is. It's cancer, it's cardiovascular, it's metabolic, it's neurodegenerative. So you have to stop it. How do you stop it? Early detection is one of the three central pillars to do something about it. Yeah, and so how how do we detect these things early? Because I know there is also the concern of certain screenings maybe producing false positives. So it's like, how do we balance that out? Like, what is the optimal screening and if you want to break down each one, heart disease, cancer, yeah, that's a testing. That's a great question. That's my one of my favorites. The whole false positive situation, and ah, uh, okay, because that's also not really thought through. People say, "Oh, false positive." What does it exactly mean? And when you look at, yeah. first of all, the modalities, you have new things like blood tests, right? Liquid biopsies that cell free DNA they detect tumor signals very early now. You have other blood tests uh, that are more conventional that also detect certain things, like from A1C, metabolic, you know, blood glucose levels and things like that. 
Then you have full body MRIs, very important. So full body MRIs create three-dimensional high-resolution images from head to pelvis, so all organ systems. And they see all kinds of things, right? They can see plaque, they can see tumors, they can see muscular skeletal conditions. They can also see metabolic conditions, right? Enlarged liver, fatty deposits, kidney, liver, and so on. Um, so they just are, I think, instrumental in understanding what's going on that we recommend once a year. And uh, they have become much better, better systems, better AI, better imaging. And to your question, if you do all these screenings, of course, you will have more signal. And if you have more signal, the famous false positives come into the equation. And so what are false positives? Now, the interesting answer to that question is no one really has, has thought this through. People just say it's a false positive. What do you mean? So you see a lesion in the liver. You think that lesion is not there. So it's a positive and it's not there. It's like, no, no, that's not what I mean. The false positive is that you have a fatty liver and it's not really true. It's like, well, you have fatty lesions in the liver, right? That's not a false positive. Well, you have a cancer associated mutation in the blood. That's not a false positive. That's true. So the problem with the false positives comes in when you do medical interpretation of these things that is, you know, too dramatic that you say you have cancer. Well, that was a false positive. Maybe you don't have cancer. Maybe it's just a cancer associated variant. So false positives, I think I would describe as a phenomenon that occurs when you have a lack of medical intelligence. And a lack of medical intelligence is you jump to conclusions too fast, to the wrong conclusions. And then you have a false positive. Then you say, oh, you have liver cirrhosis. Like, no, that's a false. That's not true. Or you have cancer. That's not necessarily true. We don't know that yet. So false positives are kind of a function of a medical system that has no time and very limited medical intelligence and is forced to, to jump to conclusions without thinking. That's the current mm. system of medicine. They say, oh, Renee is here, test, oops, here, boom, put her on that track. Like, no, that's terrible. That was the wrong decision. And now she's getting damaged through downstream diagnostics that are necessary. That was a false positive, but that's not the fault of the signal or the screening. It's the fault of the medical intelligence that follows. And so mm. with more screening comes more signal. With more signal comes more need for advanced medical intelligence to avoid these wrong decisions. So in a way, false positives are not a thing. False decisions are a thing. And the more data you throw at a physician, if that physician had, has no technology or no advanced medical intelligence, more signal will increase the risk of false decisions. And that's what people mean with false positives without knowing that. But, yeah. but that's actually the problem. And we have to understand that at high resolution, what that problem is to get out of that thinking. And yeah. to... To counter that, the right answer is not, oh, we don't want to see anything. We don't want to see any signals because we can't handle it. We always make these wrong decisions. No, if that's the case. Maybe we have more signals and better decisions. What about that? That would solve more problems. So I always give this, yeah. <laughs> you know, from the intelligence community, when you think about national defense and the CIA or the Pentagon, and they have bad guys somewhere, terrorists or something. Like imagine these guys would say, you know what? We are so bad in interpreting data that it's very bad to get more intelligence on the ground because we always make these mistakes. So please stop giving us all the data. 
that's not how it works. Like yeah. they say yeah. like, no, give me all the data. If we have failures, maybe fix the failures and make better decisions based on the data. So in national defense, no one says, oops, we don't want to know too much because maybe we make the wrong decisions. They say like, no, we know, want to know everything. If we make the wrong decisions, maybe we fix that. And I think yeah. in medicine, medicine should work the same way. They would say, no, I want all the data I can get. And if I can't handle that, then I have to you know, do something about it and become maybe better in, in handling data. Yeah. Like that Great may be analogy. common in, in human interaction. Like, oh, no, I can't handle that. Don't tell me. But it sounds like there's no place for that in medicine. So, Well, there is. Unfortunately, there is a big place. It's called medicine. But that shouldn't be there. Like there we should, shouldn't be. <laughs> shouldn't <Yeah>. be. <laughs> because no, it's like, yeah, Lauren, to your point, I mean, for you as a person, there's psychology and all these things. But if you're a professional who handles patients, you shouldn't think like that. You should say like, no, yeah. give me all the data. Yeah. And, so is the yeah. solution to put more resources into education and training of the physicians that are reading these, or are we going to learn more, uh, lean more on machine learning or AI to just give us more accessible data points? Well, I think, unfortunately, the, the damage and the deficits in the system run much, much deeper than we can quickly fix system-wide, right? So the problem is, I was bashing a little bit how medical practice right now, but if you go to the front lines, Kaiser Permanente, primary care doc, I mean, what are these poor folks going to do if I say, here's Vinny, here's like 20 gigabytes of data, you have five minutes to make a decision. You can't even read it, you just have to make a decision because there's a next patient. And if you use more than five minutes, you get punished. It's like, well, okay, fine, that doesn't work. And so do you give them any kind of AI, super AI that already crunches everything? Like, no, of course not. You give them a bunch of faxes, say here's 200 things you have to read. You have one minute and then they make a decision in one minute and talk to the patients three minutes and next. Well, it's just stupid. It breaks the system. So how do you fix that? I don't know how to fix the entire system because that's an economics problem. But for you as individual people, you should look for, you know, offerings where you can pay people that are technology enabled that take much more time and have much more technology to actually look at your case and make the right decisions and i think that's unfortunately where we are right now that you have to pay much more money and you have to pay it out of pocket because the healthcare system is a little messed up and they can't do that they literally can't they don't have the technology they don't have the strategy and they don't have the time and they don't have the education so yeah. In my opinion, the only way to fix that is to create an alternative private payer system that blueprints that, then scales it, and then creates much better technology and workflows. And then ultimately, in 10 years or 20 years, you can start you know, transferring that into the standard of care system. Mm. That's the only way to do it. You need kind of a lab situation, innovation lab, where you do this, where people just pay more money. And then over time, we bring down the cost for it. It's still going to be yeah. more than five bucks. That's like what the healthcare system thinks it should be. But, uh, you know, it starts, you know, I mean, we are already disrupting that space a little bit, but it starts with multiple thousands of dollars and then you get all the screenings and over time we can bring down this price and that's exactly the strategy. But yeah, yeah. I think making that high priority preventative care and, and generating a lot of data and then generating a lot of intelligence around the data is just the only way you can solve the problem. And you just have to make this more efficient. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. That all makes a lot of sense. Actually, I appreciate 
that you are creating something that even if it is for a wealthier population at first, it, over time, it's going to be for everyone. It's definitely a step in the right direction because right now we don't really have any options in typical healthcare. So um, appreciate what you're doing with that. Question about how uh, or what other diagnostics? So we talked, you know, briefly talked about cancer. So diabetes, is that simply through blood testing? What else are you looking at to screen I mean, really for that? To the point I made before, when you look at what actually drives, you know, down mortality, there are these multiple layers. Like how often do you test? What do you test? And what do you do with the results? And how do you manage patients through this? These are four dimensions, like how frequent, what do you exactly do? How do you generate intelligence? And then how do you handhold to the solution? And in the biohacking space, people are very focused on number two. Like, what are all your modalities? Do you test this, pick up microbiome? Do you test all my hormones? Do you all do this stuff? But it's it's really a geometric function. It's like, how do you do all these four things? And if you don't do that and don't do that, right, and just do the middle thing, it's pretty useless. And uh, our philosophy here is kind of minimize the modalities to the maximum effect needed, right? So that's a full body MRI. That is liquid biopsy for multi-cancer detection. That is a bunch of standard of care conventional blood tests. And that is very extensive data. So where we basically ask you questions about what happened, your medical history, your family history. And we believe that's a very good core set of tests. And adding more tests adds much more value, uh, much less value than optimizing the other pieces around it. And each test has kind of consequences for downstream and upstream, right? How frequent you test and what you do. So for example, in metabolic, A1C, such a simple and cheap test, is kind of your central instrument, in my opinion, to actually manage your whole metabolic health. Because if your A1C is totally under control, the odds that something is totally off in terms of glucose is not very high, right? If you have no symptoms. And so... And for most people, for a shocking amount of people, A1C is off, right? It's pre-diabetic or something. So for cancer, it's really about full body MRIs and liquid biopsy. That combination, that is really the key. Plus certain standard of care screens like stool tests, you know, fit tests, mammograms, like the standard pieces. Um, and there, you know, you, you add already a very dramatic level of additional protection. For cardiovascular, I mean, the full body MRIs are very powerful because you also see plugs and things like that and neurodegenerative same thing you see the brain you see if something's going on and you see that pretty early stage so okay. the combination of genomics liquid biopsy and mris plus standard kind of blood tests for metabolic specifically plus data like asking you what's going on and what your family profile is is really the centerpiece of that second piece of the equation and then you then it's much more important that you get the other pieces right. Like how frequently do you do that? And that doesn't mean do it constantly, but do it once a year at a minimum. Then what do you do with the intelligence? Like, do you have a medical intelligence team that connects the dots and says, when I look at all the results, here's what's going on and what you should do. And in nearly all instances, the answer is no, no one has that. That's bad. And finally, okay, the team tells you something. Can you, do you have a care coordination team that actually make sure you do it, right? If they see, well, you have a problem, uh, maybe you have, you know, a beginning of a fatty liver and some A1C issues. 
can we put you on a nutrition exercise program for the next three months? And can we measure again if it becomes better? And so, yeah, you know, my philosophy is, is really, can you focus on these central pillars that are proven to work and just make them work and not get distracted with the 10 million other things you could do? But <laughs> because if you do that, that is proven to dramatically reduce the risk of death. Yeah. And so it's complex enough. Like, let's fix that first. And if that's all flawless, then we can go into vitamins and all kinds of stuff. But I think in the beginning, just make sure you're not dying of cancer because the vitamins are not going to help you. Yeah. I mean, we always talk about like getting back to the basics on this show. It's like, of course, we love all the fancy biohacking tech and the, you know, peptides and stem cells, all this stuff. But it's like, if you're eating McDonald's and not leaving your couch all day, like why bother with all the other things? So exactly. It's kind of like- And even if you do everything right, are you sure you don't have like a three centimeter tumor right now in your body? And it was like, I don't know. Like, well, that's a problem. Yeah. You should should know that this is not the case. Right. I mean, I I would love to do the all the testing sooner than later. I'm 36, almost 37. I'm like, I don't even think I want to wait till 40. I'd rather get started and know in advance. Yeah, we just Um, had a we just had a a case, right? Uh, 39 old woman who had breast cancer we found breast cancer right and normally i mean stage one very likely let's see but if you wait another year until 40 when you have officially like the screening start i mean that's not great you give the tumor like 12 months to grow from a stage one or two that could be stage three or four right so there you have it i mean yeah especially for women i think 35 is a good starting point because we hear that again and again like what if you just get cancer before the standard of care screening start, mm-hmm. right? which definitely happens. Hey, biohackers, are you looking to supercharge your focus, motivation, and mental clarity? Well, look no further because we've got something exciting to share with you today. It's called Blue Canatine by Prescriptions, and it's a game changer for those who want to unlock their full potential. Blue Canatine is a unique cutting-edge supplement that combines four powerful ingredients, methylene blue, caffeine, nicotine, and CBD. This extraordinary blend is designed to support your energy levels, enhance your concentration, and give you the mental clarity and motivation you need to tackle your day head on. So let's break it down. First up, methylene blue. This powerful compound has been shown to enhance mitochondrial function, helping your cells produce more energy. It's like a jumpstart for your brain and body, keeping you alert and focused. This is also what's responsible for those fun blue tongue photos we post on social media. But don't worry, if you don't want the blue tongue, you can always swallow the turkey instead. Next up, we have caffeine. We all know caffeine is a classic pick-me-up, but combined with the other ingredients in blue canatine, it's like caffeine on steroids without the jitters. Next up, we have nicotine. Now, before you jump to any conclusions, blue canatine uses a very, very low dose of nicotine at just one milligram for an entire trochee. This has been shown to have cognitive enhancing effects, which is one reason why we love taking it before recording a podcast. And finally, we have CBD. This just helps create a sense of balance and relaxation to complement the energy boosting effects of the other ingredients. And the best part, blue canatine is backed by science and carefully crafted to provide consistent, reliable results. Whether you're an entrepreneur, a student, a busy parent, or anyone looking to maximize their productivity, This supplement is here to help you perform at your peak. All right, so you ready to try it yourself? 
head on over to troscriptions.com. Make sure you use promo code biohackerbabes to get an exclusive 10% discount on your purchase. Again, that's troscriptions.com. And I will put the link in the show notes. So go ahead and scroll down to check that out. All right, let's get back to the show. Yeah. And would you say it's more common than not that it's going to come up on these screenings and maybe not just in like a basic blood chemistry, even if we're looking through a more like absolutely quote unquote functional lens? Yes, absolutely. I mean, as a rule of thumb, the liquid biopsies tend to be less sensitive, so they overlook more, but they're more specific. So if they find something that's very serious and you see already the mutational profile, whereas the MRIs are much more sensitive and less specific, so you see much more. And in nine out of 10 cases, it's not cancer. You see some things like, ooh, this could be cancer, and it turns out to be not. But in one in 10, you know, it is cancer. So Mm. The MRI requires more intelligence, like to look through and say, okay, fine, we found something, but what is that now? But then it's very easy downstream, right? You get a needle biopsy, for example, and then you know what's going on. And if it turns out not to be a tumor, I mean, not not to be a malignancy, I mean, it's not that bad of a problem, right? You you found a lump in the breast, get a needle biopsy, get a little scare, of course. You say, oh my God, it could be cancer. Do a needle biopsy, it turns out it's not cancer. I mean, no, no, no one is going to be mad about that. It's like, well. No. <laughs> you know? Yeah. So, but if it is cancer, it's incredibly important to, to see. Yeah. Mm-hmm. How about with, if like a man has an elevated PSA and they do the full body MRI, I think you said it goes down to how yes. far? Would it? Pick That's up another great example. We just had it a, a month ago. We found prostate cancer, 1.4 centimeter tumor in the prostate through the MRI. Oh, and wow. and again, of course, you know, then next thing that happens, you know, I think, you know, that it was staged at the, the prostate staging. They have a specific staging. It was staged at four and then they did a high resolution MRI on it and then downgraded it i think to three or 2.5 or whatever and so that was like also now this patient's in watchful waiting so they say like don't operate on it it's not could be just slow growing so maybe it's not worth doing the operation and so these are these false positive discussions of course this is a tumor it's also malignant it's clearly cancer but in prostate cancer you know it's the decision what you actually do can be complicated and so some docs which I absolutely don't share that perspective. I think it's ridiculous. But maybe even a large share of doctors say, I rather not know that because in most instances of prostate cancer, you don't have to do anything. So it's better not to know. So we don't create anxiety. I think that's nuts. Like if you ask me, that's completely nuts. I take a clear stance here. I think it's nuts because that's up to the patient to decide. And we have data and people are mostly rational. Right. And they can make rational decisions like, okay, fine. I know I have prostate cancer. So what do I do now? Okay. It doesn't seem very dangerous based on all the surrounding metrics we see. So let's do watchful waiting, but then they can make all kinds of decisions. They can say, maybe I want a liquid biopsy where I actually measure the mutational load in the blood to see if there's any aggressive mutation coming up. And I can do this every six months. So, but if you don't know you have prostate cancer, you don't know anything. So, right. and then you ask, what's the percentage of aggressive versus non-aggressive? They say, oh, it's only like 5% or only 10%. It's like, are you kidding me? So you have 10 patients and one dies because mm. you don't want to see it. So it's like, yeah. Yeah, it all makes no sense. I think if you're in our mindset here, that you're proactive, I think it's completely nuts to say you have a malignancy, like a tumor, and you don't want to know that. 
because in most instances, it's not that dangerous. I think it's nuts. Yeah, like you said before, it's not going away. And I think it's important that the doctors aren't just taking on that responsibility. It is important to put the power and the responsibility on the patient client to some extent, right? Like this is body and health sovereignty. We should be able to get access to this information to make the decision that makes the most sense for us. Of course, it can be scary, but then again, come back to what you said. It's only going to get worse potentially. Exactly. So we should be celebrating the fact that maybe we found something. It's not that bad right now. Yeah. Rather than being like, oh, we, we found something. Not sure. If it's but it's also bad. Lauren, to, to your point. I mean, I always have some sympathy with, you know, doctor perspectives, not complete always. I think sometimes they're just completely wrong, but they have to deal with the whole breadth of the population. Right. And yeah. you guys are not the typical population because you're deep into health and biohacking proactive. Yeah, of course you want data and of course you can make more rational decisions. Um, If I would throw, you know, the average random, you know, cross-section of the population at you, you also would get frustrated at some point. Sure. You know, so whatever, like that's why we have a free market and that's why I think people should make up their own minds. And someone who's super irrational and scared about everything is probably not gonna, you know, scan everything. So I think people, there are different types of people. And there should be different types of offerings. My personal recommendation is everyone should become more rational because it can kill you not to be. But if you don't want to, I mean, I can't help you. So (laughs) in the end, we need the right patients with the right doctors and the right modalities. And then it all pans out. And I think this centralized healthcare thinking, there's one healthcare system for everyone, is just incredibly stupid. It just kills everyone in the end because Mm -hmm. this is not how it works. Like people... I don't want that. I want high resolution understanding of what's going on. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It's a really good point. Yeah. We and, all need a different know, and system. And everyone talks about access and money and everything. It's not just access and money. It's also personal preferences. You know, it's not that people don't have money. They spend it on other stuff. So it's really, for me, it's top priority to be healthy and to see these things early stage and know everything. And I think there are other people who have the same priorities. And for us, there should be a solution. And that solution might not be appropriate for someone who doesn't care. But yeah. just the fact that someone doesn't care doesn't mean I can't care, right? And to put us in the same bucket is very bad. Yeah. Yeah. Can you believe summer is already over? It always seems to fly by. And I mean, who doesn't love summertime? I feel like it's a great chance to break away from your daily grind. You can enjoy life a little bit more with friends and family. Although... All the fun aside, we sometimes are a little bit tempted to fall off our healthy routines, right? In the summer, we have longer days, so we tend to stay up later. We might have more irregular eating habits, maybe a little more indulging on vacations. Hey, it happens to all of us. But as vacation season winds down, it's time to get back on track with our health. And I think a great thing to focus on as we transition into the fall season is sleep. Sleep for me is always number one. Of course, eating healthy, exercise, stress management, all of that is helpful too. But I think focusing on sleep is a great way to kick off the season. And just one interesting fact about sleep to mention, drinking more than two servings of alcohol per day for men and more than one serving per day for women can decrease sleep quality by 39.2%. 
And that is according to the Sleep Foundation survey. And that's not even mentioning all the other maybe indulgent food or late night eating effects. So remember, sleep is the key to your body's rejuvenation and repair process. It controls hunger and weight loss hormones, boosts energy levels, impacts countless other vital functions. Good night's sleep will improve your well-being much more than anything else. So this fall, we're focusing on sleep. And that's where something like magnesium can come in. Most of us are not getting enough magnesium in our diet because the soil is depleted. Our food supply is just not providing the magnesium we need. And magnesium is really, really important for falling asleep, staying asleep, and even waking up refreshed. Now, I'm not saying to go to any store and just pick up a magnesium off the shelf. I would recommend... Magnesium Breakthrough by Bioptimizers. This product specifically contains all seven forms of magnesium, which help with all those processes of sleep that I mentioned. And really, the sleep benefits are remarkable. Once your sleep is optimized, you'll find it's easier to tackle everything else when it comes to your health, right? You have more energy to go to the gym, more energy to cook, go grocery shopping, all those things. So trust me, it's a game changer. All right. So visit magbreakthrough.com, Biohacker Babes, and you can save 10% with code biohackerbabes10. The special offer is only available at magbreakthrough.com slash biohackerbabes. And I will put that link in the show notes. So go ahead and scroll down. All right, let's get back to the show. Actually, Joe, I just remembered one of the days at the mastermind, we were having lunch together and at the table, you know, some of us were talking about how health can be really expensive. And you chimed in. I actually really, really appreciated your answer. Can you just maybe do a quick thing about how why health doesn't have to be expensive? Yeah, I think, well, it becomes very expensive if you miss everything in the end have like late stage cancer and, you know, that's very bad. So I think expensive, I think is relative. So number one, once you have a regime, in, a regimen in place that gives you the data, you know, and that costs you maybe 5,000 bucks or something a year. So number one, I always ask people, how much do you spend per year? And then they say, on what? And I say like on everything, right? Because your life is everything, by the way. If, you, if you're dead, your house and your fancy car and your fancy phone and your fancy internet and your fancy this and that and leases don't help you, you're dead. So I think it's also a preference, like what are we spending money on? And the more you do that, the more you become preventative, the more you become preventative, the more you actually save long-term as yourself. Like, because you are the, you are the biggest beneficiary of, preventive health not your insurance company not the government because they have other rationales behind it but for yourself not getting cancer or getting early stage instead of late stage cancer or cardiovascular condition saves you so much money and time that is always worth it and then when you think about what it actually requires to not get there it's not even expensive like often it's cheaper just don't go to restaurants like cook yourself because it's healthier so <laughs> there you already saved you five thousand so, yeah, you know, yeah. but first we have to educate people that that's even a thing, right? Exactly. So, I mean, it seems simple to us, but many people that don't realize that restaurants are actually harming their health, you know, exactly. it's social, it's social and your wallet. Important. <laughs> and your wallet. Yeah. Yeah, yeah exactly. Part of that. Yeah. Yeah. All right. Well, well thank you for that. <laughs> that's why we have you guys, your podcast, very important, educating people on this. That's uh, the goal. Thank you. But yeah. also, like, it, it has to start with, I really believe in these annual screenings that are comprehensive because they tell you so much. It, it's really a difference. Even for me, who's very health aware, I had like an enlarged liver, for example, because I had like metabolic problems and I felt actually bad that year, 
but seeing it is a whole different ball game. He's like, this is just very serious. And of course, a primary care doc would say, what, well, whatever serious is, you don't have symptoms. Everyone has a little enlarged liver. It's like, well, not me. Like, that's not okay. And so, yeah, you know, I started much more extensive fasting program and things like that because even if you're super aware if you don't have any metrics against it you just tell yourself it's fine it's like whatever i'm sure i'm healthy i'm eating so healthy well no you need like a hard feedback loop that tells you what what is the measurement so if you have fat deposits in the liver and 16 percent enlargement that's just not healthy you can argue it's not a symptom and it's not fatty liver yet but it's it's bad can't happen yeah, yeah, I would agree. The feedback is so essential. It's, I see this a lot, even just with my clients that are wearing continuous glucose monitors, you know, they're taking 30 supplements and they're eating quote unquote healthy and trying really hard. And then they finally sign up for the feedback, which in this case is the CGM and they go, whoa, oh gosh, my body's telling a totally different story. But there's so many people that don't even take that next step to get any kind of feedback. They just kind of rest on the fact that they're doing what's been told, what's popular opinion and trend in the health and nutrition space. And exactly. And this assume is like, that it's working. Right. We get lured yeah. into that. It's like, oh, the, all these supplements are great. And then <laughs> eat this and that, right? Eat just whatever, brown rice and broccoli and chicken are great. But, but well, <laughs> oh, did, God. You, did you measure <laughs> this whole thing? Like yeah. what actually happens to you? I was, I was on this diet that worked great for weight loss, but it was kind of a, high metabolism diet i think it totally messed me up long term because it had carbs mm. it had rice for example it was very regimented like how much that you eat very like controlled but it had like basically three meals and two snacks because it was the kind of the strategy to have high metabolism which kind of worked in right. the beginning but i think it completely messed up my insulin resistance and the whole thing and so you need these metrics in to see what actually works, right? What, you know, fasting, for example, in my opinion, is so much more important. It's more important than what you eat because you need to give your body rest, right? It needs to just have nothing mm -hmm. for long periods of time. Mm -hmm. yeah. Or maybe fat or something, but it's, you know, even protein. Protein has, you know, impacts insulin 50% as much as carbs. So that's mm -hmm. still a big peak. If you eat a big fat portion of protein, that's half as bad as eating the same amount of carbs. So it's kind yeah. of a, yeah. and then the frequency, right? Even if you have a carb feast once a day and then eat nothing, that's probably much healthier than eating like little protein snacks the whole day long <laughs> because you're constantly loading up the insulin. So whatever, and you can listen to these theories all day long, who the hell knows what's going on in the end. You need to have a measure and see like, I'm just messed up. Okay, that's bad. So what do we do now? Yeah, right, it doesn't work right. for me. Now, what can I do? What are my options? Exactly. Chances are it's not going to be what everyone else is doing. Yeah. Yeah. So I'm curious, like, big picture. So I think hopefully everyone listening is like, okay, I'm on board. I want the information. Like, where can people go to get these things done? And like, how is that going to change in the next maybe five, 10 years as it gets easier? Yeah, I mean, I'm working with a lot of different companies uh, that in the space, I'm a big fan of everyone who tries to do something. And the company that kind of connects the dots the best, in my opinion, is uh, Resolution at getresolution.life. They're working with, you know, there are also other companies like Fountain Life. It's a little pricey. It's 20,000 bucks a year. Uh, then you have Solace Health. <laughs> Yeah, we're familiar with that. <laughs> uh, you have Solace Health that do emerge in an urgent care, great company. They're not doing preventative, but they are also 
doing a partnership with resolution. So the space is coming together. And I think if you want to have a starting point, resolution is probably the best because they're connecting the dots, they're doing the screenings uh, and they're helping you with medical intelligence. So for example, if you did a pre-nuvo scan, maybe your listeners know pre-nuvo, that's like a full body MRI company. They're doing also a great job, but they only do the scan and they don't do follow-ups and they don't do medical interpretation. They give you a good report, radiology mm -hmm. report, but okay, what does it mean? How does it tie into my the rest of my medical findings outside MRI? Do I also need genomics? Do I need blood tests? That's where resolution comes in to actually give resolution to all these things. It's a good name. So yeah. they basically yeah. connect all the dots like, okay, what do you have? What don't you have? What is missing? And once we have all the data, what do we do now? And put you on a program. And I think that's the best, most powerful way to do preventative medicine. Yeah, and how absolutely. involved slash connected is it once we have that interpretation? Because I feel like that's where the pieces often really fall apart is, you know, client patient gets information, we get a basic protocol blueprint, and then three months from now, it's like, oh, wait, forgot to check in on that person. Exactly. And so I think that's also what the resolution is doing well. Like, it's still early stage, the whole space, but they basically work on it in a way where you have programs so you once you do the screenings dots get connected they put you on a program with partners who do nutrition and exercise for example right coaches and then it's tied in into a follow-up testing right so okay if if the problem was a1c for example that gets tested or cholesterol whatever it is and i think that's important that it's like an annual plan and membership whether you have quarterly check-ins and whatever needs to be done is being done and followed up And I think that's what we have to get to. It needs to be an annual screening, like full high resolution screening, and then a 12 months follow through. And for some people, maybe you're totally fine, right? Then there's not much follow through. But in a year, you need to do the same thing again, because how do you otherwise optimize, maximize the area under the curve? So, I mean, the curve is your life and the area under the curve is your preventative checks and all measures taken, and you need to maximize that area under the curve. You can't just do it today and then not do it for 10 years. Mm -hmm. So you have to systematically knock that out. And what I like about the resolution approach is that it combines these previously disconnected areas of real prevention and early detection. Because normally you have screenings, but they have nothing to do with your actual regimen. But now it's connected because the screenings actually find the dots say, okay, that dot, that metric needs to be improved. How do you improve it? Well, nutrition, exercise, sleep, mindfulness, like what's going on here? Are you actually doing that? If not, can we connect you to a trainer to do the right thing? And can we then follow through? And can we have once a year, a really comprehensive full screening? Both yeah. to follow through, but also to see new developments. Like, I mean, cancer, no one wants to talk about it, but that's always even neurodegenerative. I mean, at some point it just might happen right? Regardless of what, and you need to intercept that point as early as possible. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, yeah, the neurodegenerative conditions that, that to me, that's the most terrifying with, you know, our grandfather passed from Alzheimer's and even just like over the weekend, Lauren, I know you started at the documentary about Michael J. Fox with Parkinson's. It's like, uh, gosh, I just, I want to know the sooner, the better, you know. And I we wanna... also hear, I mean, on that front, yeah. uh, this is all very early science, of course, but I'm also not one of these guys who say, oh, we need more evidence. Like, of course we need more. Like, that's the dumbest thing I've ever heard. Of course we need more evidence. But what does it mean? Does it mean in the meantime, <laughs> we don't do anything? 
So right, when, right. when it comes to neurodegenerative, there is enough evidence uh, to show that many of these conditions, especially Alzheimer's, I mean, some call it already type three diabetes, that this is very connected to all these issues, right? And yeah. again, that means early detection is key. So if you see any kind of deterioration or shrinking in any kind of brain region, which you totally see on an MRI, you can see things 10 years before you have symptoms. Because you don't have symptoms if you if you have some kind of shrinking area of the brain, right? It, it only when it really deteriorates have you uh, any kind of effects, and that can be a wake up call. That's for me with my liver. You know, if I had the same thing in the brain, I would freak out, of course, even more. But you know, then we have certain measures that are more and more shown to work, right? Try some fasting. Try to get insulin down. Try to work out more. Try to get circulation up, and see what that does. And do it consistently over a year. That's the next thing. Like no fat diets and exercise. Like this is all about area under the curve. If you do a great job today and then nothing for two months, it's not going to help. Yeah. 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 Definitely agree with that. And definitely agree. They're all connected. I think that's a big missing opportunity. We have to keep talking about how they potentially could be connected. Right. You mentioned neurodegeneration could be a metabolic issue. We could say cancer, metabolic metabolic issue. issue. Yeah, I mean, this is also something Peter Atia, I think, does a good job in outlining that, you know, medicine, how does he call it? 2.0 or 1.0? I don't know. Like, Oh, yeah. 1.0, yeah, 2.0, 3.0, I think is. I don't know where if we have 3.0. Exactly. So the old yeah. version of medicine that you just view isolated uh, problems. I always explain it like when you think about how people died in the 1800s and 1700s and before. There were like two causes of death that basically were 95% of all deaths. <laughs> like violent deaths, you could just stab to death or something, bullet yep. holes. <laughs> and number one, infectious diseases. And so they both have something in common that all of modern medicine is designed around. They are external influences on your body. Like a bullet is just doesn't belong in your body. So if it's in your body, fine, you have a problem, you need surgery, you need something very urgently. If you have cholera or the black death or the bubonic plague this is just doesn't belong in your body you got infected with some really bad stuff and it needs to be treated with antibiotics you need that otherwise you die so both were these external influences and that's how the entire modern medicine is built around it's like emergency surgery and antibiotics and stop the bleeding and like cut off the arm whatever it is right so right. that is medicine and that's still the mindset. You come in and you tell the doctor, oh, I want to make sure like whatever my A1C, my... and they just look at it like, do you have the bubonic plague? Do you have a bullet hole? What's your problem? Do you have a broken yeah. leg? If you're not dying, get out of here. <laughs> right. So this <laughs> yeah. is still totally the mindset. And it's like, no, I'm very healthy and I want to keep it this way. They just look at you as if you're crazy. It's like, what's, what's wrong with you? You clearly are not dying. So yeah, I think this medicine 2.0, when you look, at the cause of death today, these things don't play a role, right? They are totally marginal, infectious diseases and these violent things, trauma. That's very good. That's the triumph of medicine. That's why we doubled life expectancy because we knocked them all out. But now we still die. Well, we die of totally different things. We die of the four horsemen, metabolic, cardiovascular, neurodegenerative, and cancer. They all have one thing in common. They are systemic diseases that come out of our own body. And so they're chronic and systemic. And so to fight them, we cannot 
do that old like medicine 1.0 paradigm. We have to think systemically about the body. And the funny thing is that in the end, it always comes down to metabolic health in one way or the other. It's like, you know, do you move enough? Do you eat the right things? Do you do a little fasting? Or do you constantly stress all your body cells with crazy amounts of insulin? And in a way, it's very simple. I think it's like it's like a brilliant, the brilliant breakthrough for medicine 2.0 is to understand this is kind of simple. But what's complex about it is it's it's not allopathic medicine to take a pill. It, it requires new systems of life that kind of optimize your life continuously and forever to do these things. And that's a totally different paradigm, right? So, okay, this is coaching. This is systems. It's cloud systems. It's apps, right? That's, yeah. that's community. That's information. That is infrastructure, grocery stores and stuff like that. So this is all stuff that doesn't really exist. We need a totally new infrastructure that makes it simple for us to live a healthy life. And that can even be gyms, whatever, like the infrastructure that keeps our mind and bodies in line with what is healthy. And that is completely alien to the current system of healthcare. And yeah. I think that's the real future. We just, I, if I could live in a world where my housing, my workplaces, my grocery stores, my apps, and my community is just designed around, you know, getting my, my nutrition in at the right point in time with the right type of thing with no toxins and putting exercise and community and mindfulness into my life without me doing anything about it, we would be very happy, all of us. And that's not even hard. It just needs to be designed. Yeah, that's a beautiful oh. design. You're right. It sounds so simple. But it's like, oh, man, back in the day, cutting off the arm sounded a lot easier <laughs> than getting people to actually make behavior change. I, I get it. Yeah, I get. Yeah, um, and I think it's it's actually more than when you think about it is I think it's more than someone telling you what to do. Like coaching might be an important thing. But when you think about civilizational progress, what that actually means, I think it's we're talking about infrastructure. Like that's my theory about it. You need a totally yeah. new way of how you even build cities and stuff like that. You just have to totally just yeah. live in a different situation that is systematically optimized to make you happy and healthy. And I'm not, yeah. I don't mean it in this hippie sense. I live here in, you know, California. So everyone's like, oh yeah, we could be all kumbaya. I'm trying to just, no, can you just plan this, plan this through as an infrastructure? Like how exactly is the architecture and the pricing of the housing and the grocery stores and the restaurants and the gyms? Are, do we even have gyms? Is that even the right thing? But how can we invent new infrastructure where you pay with your credit card a certain monthly fee to get your life organized? And the more you think about it, the more you realize this might be a really big very comprehensive thing that because it can even affect your communities and your friendship and your dating, like everything, right? This is a whole new design. Right. I mean, well, everyone would have to be on, on board. Just something as simple as can in corporate America, can we just decide that we are not going to work through lunch? Like, can we all eat lunch <laughs> and go outside? But it's going to take a massive. Well, the question is movement. to get. I that. disagree with one thing. We don't all need to decide that. You just need to decide it in your community or your company because all are definitely not going to decide that. So it's, yeah. <laughs> it's all about how can we, how can you create these new tribes mm -hmm. or communities that live together, maybe work together and do these things so they can at least agree on it and build their thing. Yeah. yeah. Well, this is really good timing 
to bring this idea up because literally later this week, we're doing a podcast with, we're going to have Brett Kaufman on who's building, I think it's called Conscious Communities. So now I'm going to take everything you said and really pick his brain on what he is building. Because yeah, I think there's a, a big disconnect there. So hopefully we'll see that. Yeah, even with uh, Adam Newman, what does he do? He has this new, it's a little unclear what it is, the WeWork founder, but he's now doing Flow, which is a new oh. residential thing. And he's like, I don't know okay. if he knows yet what it actually is, but he's very good in selling it anyway. So he's... Okay. <laughs> I'll have to look that up. I wonder if it's similar to what Brett's doing. Yeah. I mean, his okay. is very, I mean, he's a pro now in terms of raising the capital and everything, but it's it's a yeah. new residential thing where he says, Basically, everything else in our lives is optimized as, you know, what you buy, you click a button, you get what you want, but not residential housing. It's always a giant mess. Like, where's all your service? Where's like the seamless experience? Mm -hmm. Where's like a great product? There's no product. Mm -hmm. yeah. Like, you know, living is still not a product that is systematically optimized to what we need. And he's right about that. I don't know how, yeah, what are they going to do about it, but huh. I all think right. that's yeah. coming. And that's, look into that. Yeah. So that's interesting that that for me, the future of medicine, because it becomes, when you just systematically first principle break it down, why, what's the problem? We die of the four horsemen. The four horsemen are systemic conditions and diseases. What do we do about it? Well, we need systemically to solve the underlying problems, which goes all into nutrition and exercise, but also beyond, because how do you even organize that? And then you go into community and then it becomes very interesting because it's a whole new paradigm where there's a lot innovation to be done, which are great business opportunities too. So there's a, but these, we are talking about giant opportunities because it's about real estate. It's about, you know, how do you mm. organize life and work and how do you make that health and happiness first? Because we also know that happiness is connected to community, community is connected to loneliness. We know that being lonely is as bad as smoking 15 cigarettes a day. So it's all very tightly looped into that whole problem. Mm -hmm. Right. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And having a purpose. I think that's all tied in. Yeah. Exactly. All right. Well, I think we're we're on our way to solving many, many world problems. So <laughs> <laughs> thank you, Joe, for sharing all of this with our audience today. This is amazing. Um, I would like to ask one final question to you. If you can leave our audience with one final piece of advice, something they should start doing today to optimize their health, what would that be? Well, of course, I'm a little biased, but I think introducing universal early detection as a measure in your life i think it's very powerful because it directly impacts your survival survivability but as we just heard it's also the entry point into a more conscious approach to health and from there into all kinds of things so having that objective measure and seeing what's going on i think it's on a metaphysical level it's so powerful because it confronts yourself with reality and mortality and forces you to take kind of action on it instead of just running away from it. Yeah, yep. we are here to take action. I love that. So mm -hmm. if someone wants to get started, oh, something that we didn't ask you about is the 20 questions. Is that something that everyone should get started with today? And then as far as get resolution? Yeah, the 20 questions, well, they're getting transitioned more and more into partnership models where we partner 20 questions with resolution, for example. So also pre-nouveau hopefully soon. So they they're basically being integrated into these screening systems because that's what it is. It's a screening system. The 20 questions help you to identify any kind of care gaps you have. Uh, so we are integrating this more and more with other companies. Okay. But just Great. for our listeners, is that a good place to start today? 
I recommend to go to getresolution.live. That's the best starting Great. point. Okay. Excellent. Perfect. Thank we will link that. to that in the show notes. See if there's anything else on there. Are you on Instagram or Facebook? Is there anywhere else people should be following? Yeah, I'm on, I need to say Twitter. On X, I'm on X. Oh, right. It's, I know. That's <laughs> not so Twitter weird. anymore. <laughs> um, yeah, Joe Bakti. Uh, same for Instagram. Where else am I? Uh, JoeBakti.com is my website. LinkedIn? Uh, Did you say that? Yeah, LinkedIn is LinkedIn. also my website. I don't even know how to find myself on LinkedIn. Okay. We'll find you and we'll link it in the show notes. Everyone can connect. We'll make awesome. sure everyone can find you. Yeah. Thank you yeah. so much for spending your time with us today. This is wonderful. Yeah. It was a pleasure. Thank you guys so much. Thanks. And thanks to everyone that tuned in today. We will see you next time. Love this episode of the Biohacker Babes podcast? Head over to Apple Podcasts to subscribe, rate, and leave a review. We truly appreciate your support. Until then... Happy biohacking. This podcast offers health, fitness, and nutritional information and is designed for educational purposes only. You should not rely on this information as a substitute for, nor does it replace professional medical advice, diagnosis, or treatment. If you have any concerns or questions about your health, you should always consult with a physician or other healthcare professional.